Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Quaybog Church podcast. At the end of this episode, take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel or check us out on Facebook. That way you'll have access to fresh content every week. But most importantly, we hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey because our mission here at Quaybog is to help you worship, connect, and serve. Enjoy! Today we get to kind of relax a little bit. The, one of the biggest struggles with the past is from two weeks ago was not only is it like kind of hard to like wrap our heads around or to wrestle with, but like the actual topic is so hard. The the key point was how, <laughs> and I got someone agreeing. Um, the hardest part of it was that sin is such a harsh reality that sin kills, and that's like heavy. Today, we're going to actually finally swing the other way. So in Genesis, you see like this decline as it's coming down. We're actually at the point where finally we're headed upward. So if you'd like to turn along, we're going to be in Genesis 8. This is a bit of a unique passage because of the way that it's written, which we'll dig into a little bit more. Uh, before we do, there's a number of people who need to hear what God has to say in Genesis 8. So, for some, you realize that life can just be one long storm. Life's been really, really, really hard. When the flood came and the waters raged, you're barely hanging on. There's another group of people who have been storms and seen God provide, and been in storms and seen God provide, and You've gone through these rhythms, but you're in a storm right now, and this one doesn't seem like it's going to break. It doesn't seem like God's going to be able to break this one. And then the third group, you've been through the storm. In fact, you've seen God do the impossible. What do we do in response to that? And so we're going to be able to, through this passage, look at wherever you're at, how are we supposed to hear what God has to say in this passage? The thing I want you to go home with, the thing I want you to walk away with, if you hear one thing that I've said, God remembers his people. And we're going to come back to that over and over, but God remembers his people. God remembers you. So, uh, before we dive into God's word, let's take a moment and say a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Uh, we thank you that what you wrote thousands of years ago through men and women that we get to learn from today. I'm praying that as we're diving into what Genesis 8 has to say, life after the flood, I pray that we get to see clearly what you have for us today. So God, as we dig in, open our hearts, let us hear from you, and let us respond by following you. We pray this all in your name. Amen. All right, to reiterate, you guys are going to walk home with God remembers his people. Now, as we're diving in, there's something that, like, when you look at the story of Noah as a whole, we actually are at the point of it. Like, when you're like, what is the purpose of the story? Because I think if you ask that question, you could have a lot of opinions. You could say the point of the story is to be able to write a cute little storybook about all the animals in a boat and some rain. You could write that the, the point of the story is judgment, that God wanted to destroy the earth and barely survive some. Uh, you could say that the story is about Noah's faith, that Noah trusted God 
And that is the purpose of the story, to inspire us. The, the actual point of the story is Genesis 8.1. And I'll talk about why in just a second, but I want to read it first. So, Genesis 8.1. God remembered Noah, as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God caused the wind to pass over the earth, and water began to subside. And so, here's where we're at in the story. Two weeks ago, the world had gotten to its worst. Sin had corrupted everything completely. The evil couldn't get worse, and so God declared he was going to judge. But Noah was faithful. And so him and his family were the family that was chosen to survive because they were faithful. And that was it for all of humanity. One family chose to follow God. So then lastly, Joey did an awesome job. And the 17-year-old kid preaching that message, he did an awesome job in explaining the story of Noah. In fact, what he covered, most of us would just call the story of Noah. We don't talk about the, the crazy Nephilim heroes of old and the angels. We don't talk about that beforehand, because that's kind of weird. And then we don't talk about chapter 8, because realistically the cool stuff happens. But I believe the purpose of the story is here in 8.1, because God remembered Noah. That is the point of the story. Here's why. So, today, if you read an article, or if you're a student, or if you remember being a student, when you wrote an essay, they generally taught you to, if you're going to write five paragraphs, you're going to have your introduction, then you're going to have three body paragraphs. Those three body paragraphs are going to represent, like, different arguments towards the point that you've already introduced. In the conclusion, you're going to look back at what you've said so far, wrap it all up, and prove your point. We don't have to discuss it that way. We don't have to use those terms. But when we read an article or when we read anything, we understand that's the way things are written. Start with the introduction, you wrap up with the conclusion, and the body proves the point. In fact, I can prove this. Because what happens when you need a recipe? You open it up. You scroll, 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 because there's so much story and narrative, and they want to tell you about how this meal was the one that changed their life, and it, it helps them to overcome the greatest struggles that they've ever been through, and everyone in their family has been talking about this meal, and every Thanksgiving they have to cook this, and there's so much story. But what do you really want? You want the recipe. So you scroll to the bottom, get to the conclusion. We do that mindlessly. You didn't have to think about that. When you, as soon as you open up the page, you knew where you needed to go. Let's get to the conclusion. Because we understand that culturally. However, we are English-speaking 21st century people. English-speaking 21st century people did not write the Bible. It was written differently. The original, the Old Testament, is written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And then the New Testament is written in Greek. These ancient languages are actually different than their, their modern contemporaries. Like, Modern Hebrew and modern Greek are just different. Like, it's not the same language anymore. So much has changed. You have to study a different language, even though we still have those a lot. So then, when we look at Genesis, written in Hebrew, we also have to understand that they wrote in a different language, but they wrote in a different style. And so the style that they wrote in is strange. But if we can look at it and understand why they did that so intentionally, instead of saying, okay, what's the intro, what's the conclusion, you're not going to find that. They're not going to introduce, this is the story of Noah, 
And here's what we learned from Noah, that God remembers Noah. And here's the conclusion, that after we've told this whole story, that Noah was remembered by God. We're not going to see that because they're written differently. Instead, they use this tool. So they use a bunch of different tools throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. This is actually one that's kind of common, but can be hard to spot. The, the phrase is, and you don't have to remember this, throw it out as soon as I say it, but a polystrophy is what this is called. So this is Noah's polystrophy. And so we've got a slide that you're maybe not going to be able to read, but there's no better way to represent it. So see, yeah, there we go. So the words are super small. I'm going to read them for you guys just so you can see what we're talking about. But see the structure. So at the very top and the very bottom are the same level, and they mirror each other. So at the beginning of the story, God promises that he's going to destroy humanity. However, at the very end of the story, God later will promise to not destroy humanity. Or then we see at B that Noah builds an ark, but then on the other side of the story, mirrored, entering towards the center, but still at the end, Noah builds an altar. Then we see that the remnant get on board the ark, but then later they disembark the ark. We see that the flood, the flood prevails for 150 days and covers the tips of mountains. However, just on the other side of God remembers Noah, we're about to see the flood recedes over the course of 150 days, and then the tips of the mountains are revealed. The center of this story, what an ancient Hebrew reader would immediately pick up on, is that God remembers Noah. We don't read that naturally. We're not like, oh, of course, that's what the point of it all is. We don't read that way. We read differently. But because of that ancient way of writing, that this would point towards that center piece, which is God remembers Noah. So, when you're talking in the story of Genesis, or of Noah, include Genesis 8.1. That's the point. That's what, that's what God wanted us to get out of this. Oh, there's a million other lessons you can learn. You can learn about Noah's faithfulness. You could learn about God's judgment and justice. You could learn about how dangerous sin is. But if you're going to walk away from the whole story and you can only have one piece, that's the piece you should have. That God remembered Noah. So, let's go ahead and kind of work backwards now. So, Joey gave us that top half. Now I'm going to go to the bottom half, and we're going to see that kind of come out. So the first one is that the flood recedes over the course of 150 days. In this section, this is going to be Genesis 8, 2 to 5. You're going to see that it is starting to happen. 150 days, you're going to see the mountain tips show exactly mirroring what happens at the end of the story, because the flood rages and pops the mountains. So it says, the sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky stopped. The water steadily receded from the earth, and by the end of 150 days, the water had decreased significantly. The ark came to rest in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, in the mountain of Ararat. The water continued to recede until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were visible. And so in this section, we're just starting to reinforce. We're starting to see this is the mirror of what was said before. So a Hebrew reader would hear this and be like, oh, we just covered the point of this story. Like we just covered what was God's purpose in writing this. Now we're headed the other direction. There is this strange section that I want to go through a little bit more slowly because when we're reading Noah, we want to make sure that we're studying and asking the question, what is God saying to me? This is a section that I've heard many, many times, read many, many different ways. But there's a point in it all that I'd like to get to, but first I want to kind of introduce it. So I'm calling this section Bird Stuff 
because we got a lot of bird stuff going on. There's a raven, there's a dove, the, the raven kind of does its own thing, the dove has its own systems, and so as we're reading through this, it can seem weird, but I kind of want to take a second and dissect it. So, this is going to be uh, from 6 to 12. It says, After 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent out a raven. It went back and forth until the water had dried up from the ground. Then he sent out a dove to see whether the water on the earth's surface had gone down. But the dove found no resting place for its foot. It returned to him in the ark because water covered the surface of the whole earth. He reached out and brought it into the ark to himself. So Noah waited seven more days and sent out the dove from the ark again. When the dove came to him at evening, there was a plucked olive leaf in its beak. So Noah knew that the water on the earth's surface had gone down, and after he had waited another seven days, he sent out the dove, but it did not return to him again. So at first glance, this is something we kind of have heard before, like when we read the storybook, oh yeah, he sends out birds and stuff. But like, let's take a second and talk about why this is in here. Why was this, why was this something that God did and, and wanted us to remember? Why, like it's such a major section. Why is this so significant? So, there are a couple of questions that we can ask when we're headed into this section and that we kind of want to find answers to. And some of the answers to those questions are like everywhere. There's just a million different types of answers. I've kind of compiled a couple of the major ones just to sum them up. So, the big question we're asking is, why did the raven return? So, the raven goes, it flies out, and for the dove, it specifically says it returns to Noah. It returns to Noah. And the raven never returned. So, while we're asking that question, I want to preface with this. Uh, sometimes, we want to hear what God has said in a passage. Let's take a second and just push in on this one. Like, if we want to hear what God has to say, are we going to be able to find extra meaning through the raven and the dove? And so, a couple of the reasons that have been given is the first one for the raven, that they have a scavenging nature. Uh, they will find food, they, they can't eat carrion, and so after the flood, there would have been plenty to eat for a raven. And so that could have been one of the reasons. Another one is the symbolism of it. So when Noah loaded up the ark, he loaded two of every type of animal. But if it was a clean animal, there were seven. A raven falls under unclean because they're carrion eaters, they eat dead things. So then some suggest, well, that's symbolism. It might represent that sin is leaving. Uh, another reason could be God's guidance. God directed Noah to release the raven because the raven's hardier than a dove. So when he later sent out the dove, he noticed that at least the raven hadn't died. The fourth would have been the natural behavior. The raven would have been cooped up for a year plus and so finally found some freedom and left. Another reason could be the narrative purpose. So with this, it just contrasts the dove really well and I'll tell you what, it could be one of these, it could be none of these, it could be all five of these, it could be a mix of some of them. When we're looking at this part of scripture, we may be like really interested, like, oh man, like if I could find out what that is, like maybe I could know a little bit extra what God's trying to say to me. Let's look at the dove too. Uh, oftentimes when you think of the dove, it's represented, I mean, you haven't gone to a church and not seen the picture of the dove with an olive branch in its mouth. The reason that it's depicted that way is because we see doves as bringing peace. But it didn't have an olive branch in itself. It specifically had an olive leaf, 
which has no connection to peace. And so, with this, maybe the bird, the dove, does represent peace, and God's saying something through that, but the realistic, it seems like something we're kind of trying to force onto it. Uh, another one is that the dove has been interpreted in the past as the Holy Spirit himself, because in John 1, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says that it's the, the Son of God, and he saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove on him. And so some people get really psyched up when they see a dove, they're like, that's the Holy Spirit for sure. And maybe it is. What I'd like to throw out there, and this is my bold claim, is that sometimes a dove is just a dove. Sometimes a raven is just a raven. Sometimes when we're reading through Scripture, what God's trying to communicate points back to what He's really saying. What He's really saying is He remembered Noah. God provided the truth that Noah needed. God provided an olive leaf. Do you know why that's significant? I didn't know that. The olive leaf is significant because an olive tree has like really low branches. So if a bird could go find a fresh olive leaf, that means those low branches are exposed. That light is beginning to become habitable. That the water levels are way lower. And life's going to be able to start to return. There's a lot of significance in that. And that points back to that God remembered Noah. And so while you may be interested in digging in and trying to find extra meaning, don't miss the fact that sometimes a dove's just a dove. Sometimes birds the bird, and there's nothing extra to it, but it's the fact that God still remembered Noah. Now, with that in mind, he gets the all clear. He sees the olive leaf. He gives it another week, and then he opens up the door, and God tells him, time to go. In Genesis 8.15, it says, Then God spoke to Noah, Come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all of the living creatures that are with you. Birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth, and they will spread on the earth, and don't miss this, and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah, along with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, came out. All of the animals, all of the creatures that crawl, and all of the flying creatures, everything that moves on the earth, came out of the ark by their families. Here's what we cannot miss. In the beginning, with Adam and Eve, in Eden, do you remember what the command was? Be fruitful and multiply. And yet, here again, he gives the command anew. When Adam and Eve received the command to be fruitful and multiply, they did. The world populated. But sin had a death grip on it. It corrupted all of humanity. Things went south real fast and continually declined and declined. In fact, Adam and Eve's kids were the first ones to uh, sin and be victims of sin because Cain killed Abel. And so even in those early generations, sin was starting to take full effect. So then, while God saves humankind through Noah, he also restores their purpose. The original mandate given to mankind was be fruitful and multiply. And while it's of course obvious that they need to repopulate the earth, giving that command again, the same phrasing, it, it's a restoration of what they were called to. They were given this original purpose that got lost. They, they failed it. That sin had taken hold and yet then they come back after God has restored humanity, he restores their purpose as well. 
And there's someone in this room whose storm feels like they've lost their purpose or that something's been taken from them. But that is something that God can restore, just as He restored the purpose of humankind. Now, after this, we're, we're kind of starting to get to the end of this section of Scripture. And so in Rome, uh, Genesis 8, 20 to 22, ends the chapter, it says, Then Noah built an altar. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And we'll finish this set, but the, the, the concept here is so strange because you're like, oh, well, every time we hear the story, it's two of every animal. Well, you sacrifice one, like, we don't have that animal anymore. But when they boarded up, they, they had two of every unclean and seven of every clean. And so they had enough to be able to provide a sacrifice. And so on the scale of, like, will this animal exist in the future, Noah knows that God did something amazing. He built an altar to remember and then sacrifices everything that is clean, one of each. And it's a burnt offering. So where he's gone full vegetarian for a year, Instead of a, an offering where he can then eat it, it's a burnt offering, burnt to a crisp, nothing left. And the response to it is, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, which if you've burnt food, which I've done plenty of, it's not pleasing. But he smells the pleasing aroma, and he said to himself, I'll never again curse the ground because it's human beings. Even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward, and I'll never again strike down every living thing as I've done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, Cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. Uh, there's a, um, a passage that I uh, really love when we see this, this sacrifice. Is we're seeing Noah, though things were hard, he had to build the ark. It's not like God was like, here's the ark, get in. He had to build the ark. He had to live on a boat with all those animals. He had to survive the flood, but he recognized that it was God's goodness that got him through. That it wasn't something that he had to do because it was all told to him. God chose to preserve humankind through Noah. So while it wasn't easy and it wasn't happy and it wasn't fun, it was amazing what God had done. He takes the time to remember this by building an altar and making a sacrifice. The verse that this always reminds me of, someone who had been through something very similar, was in Luke 2, 19, Mary really talking about the events leading up to and right after her birth, it says, But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. It's this verse that if you're reading through it, you almost miss it. Like, it's just it's so quick and almost out of place. When you read the story, things weren't great. Like, she was about to be married, made pregnant, labeled an adulterer, had to travel days away to then ultimately delivered her baby, her first baby, in a stable against, like, disgusting animals. Then, after Herod heard that um, there was the king of the Jews born, he declares execution for all males to and under, and that she's going to run, so she spends the next couple of years in Egypt trying to raise Jesus to keep him safe. Things weren't good. Like, that's hard. That's really tough. Like, things weren't happy and fun. But they were still amazing. And she treasured those things and meditated on them in her heart. When was the last time you've done that? It's something that can be really amazing. If you've seen God's goodness, these are things we're supposed to treasure, hold on to, and remember the work that He's done. 
after this section. We're not going to read through it because it's lengthy, but in the first half of chapter 9, God creates a new covenant. He marks the covenant with a rainbow. This is the symbol that God will never flood the earth again. There's a lot of significance in that passage. One of the best things that we can still hold on to is God will never flood the earth again. However, let's look at 2 Peter in 3, 5 to 9. He's actually talking about this very experience. And, uh, first and Second Peter was written to Christian Jews that were spread, spread across the world due to uh, persecution. And in that time, people were basically just mocking them for their beliefs. They didn't understand why they would believe what they believed. And so then he's talking about these scoffers. Well, he says they deliberately overlooked this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought from the water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. He's talking about Noah. By the same word, which is the word of God, through the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. We're already seeing a mirror. While God said he'll never flood the earth again, he recognized that the uh, final day of judgment will be through fire instead. And if that's the end of this passage, what a terrible passage. But he goes on and says, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so where these early believers were trying to trust in Jesus and getting mocked for it, he gave them encouragement. He said, God's not delaying. God's patient. God wants for everyone to come to him, for everyone to know repentance, to know freedom from sin. And that's his hope. Well, this is our mirror right here. When we look at Noah and the covenant that God made with Noah, the promise was he would never destroy the world by flood again. And part of that covenant was God already brought Noah through the flood to preserve humanity. But a much better covenant was made. In Jeremiah 33, we see the, the new covenant is made through Jesus. And through Jesus, while judgment's coming, deliverance still comes through one man. And that man is Jesus. And where the judgment is greater, so is the Savior. So when we have Noah, a hero of our faith, who was able to endure so that he could continue the mission of humanity, Jesus came, died on the cross, so that we could enter into a relationship with him and be saved from this final judgment. The, the parallels are incredible. There are other places all throughout the New Testament where Noah is related to Jesus because Jesus is our great deliverer. And at the end of the day, the plan from the beginning, as soon as Adam and Eve ate the apple, there was a plan for Jesus to come. While sin would have its effects, while later different systems would be instituted, different covenants made, and we'll learn all about those through these series, this one was made, this covenant with Noah, that the world would never be flooded again. And it's a preview of the better covenant, the one that we currently have, that God will save us through his son Jesus. Now, this whole section, this story, started with one idea. God remembers his people. God remembered Noah. 
the question that I'm kind of pondering is what are we going to do to remember him? So I want to share a story. Uh, today is, uh, my family's pretty sick, but they're actually home watching right now. So, hey, Hazel, I'm about to tell a story about you. Um, about four years ago, um, Hazel was our only kid. She was nine or ten months old. I think we were pregnant with Freya, but didn't know about it. I wasn't. Alicia was. Um, and then she was really, like, still on formula, like a baby. And we were talking like a baby. And um, on, like, you know, babies, you do the whole, like, lotion thing, and you're always like, oh, your chubby cheeks are so cute. And we're always, like, feeling them up. But one time we were feeling it on the back of her leg, and it was, like, this lump. And I for Catalyst, she hasn't heard the story. So, sorry, you got to hear it again. Um, so we saw this lump, and... Like, as a parent, I'm sure there's parents in the room who can relate, like, lumps are the worst. Like, that's the last thing you ever want to see. So we get it checked out, and the doctor's, like, she's pretty chill overall. And was like, well, let's just get an ultrasound just to be sure. Like, let's get some answers. And so they did an ultrasound. They sent it off to um, UMass in uh, Worcester. And so they took a look at it. And actually, the head of pediatric surgery took a look at it, kind of deciding, like, well, should we, like, do surgery or whatever? Like, what do we have to do with it? So he took a look at it, and he's like, ah, I don't know. Like, I can't really tell. I'd love if you could come in and we could do an ultrasound. So about a week later, after that first ultrasound, we went in and we did another ultrasound. And the doctor was able to look at it, so, like, we went home. And on the way home, he calls us and says, hey, so the borders are aggressive. So, like, the tumor is spreading. And when it's something like that, we're going to take it real seriously. The reality is, he's like, we probably can't remove it. Um, odds are we're probably going to get a biopsy and just, like, get you some more information. And so we're like, okay. And they said, but also, we need her in surgery Friday. So this is Wednesday. So two days later, we've got this, like, emergency surgery. And we've been trying to keep it together, but at this point, like, it really just looks so bad. So then we show up for the surgery, and we've been praying this whole time, like, God, heal her in a way that it's clear that you did it. Because while, obviously, we want the healing, we even want further to see God do his thing. And so that was our prayer. And so we show up for the surgery, and the doctor's looking nervous. Um, we didn't catch it, thank God. But, like, I noticed, like, he just looked really uncomfortable. And so then I didn't say anything, but then afterwards I'd ask him. But um, when he was going in, he said, you know, the big hope is we're just going to get that biopsy. So it'll be an hour or two, and then we'll be out. Like, okay. So she did surgery. We're, like, freaking out for two hours. And he finally comes out, and um, he says he got the whole thing. I'm like, oh, wow. Like, we didn't expect I didn't think that was even going to be possible. And so he said when he looked at it under the microscope, he'd never seen anything like it before. They had to send it off to, uh, like, a database, I guess, in, like, Pennsylvania or something to get it, like, analyzed just to figure out what it was. So the head of pediatric surgery has never seen, like, this thing. And maybe I'm out there, like, his medical experts in here, I'm sure. But for me, like, I've always believed that the reason he couldn't recognize it is because it's God has healed cancer. Like, the borders were aggressive. It was moving. And yet it seemed like something, like, horrible that had turned out to be nothing. So it doesn't make sense to us. So we left, and it was just, like, so much, like, so taxing. Like, the whole day was just, like, panic. And then it's, like, finally we can breathe a little bit. Like, it seemed like everything was okay. They were still going to check it out, make sure. And then when we left, it, we had not even registered this fact. But the day we left wasn't just a Friday. It was Good Friday. And so on the day that we remember that Jesus, or God gave his only son, Jesus, to die for us, he didn't ask me to pay that same price. I didn't have to give up my only child. So every single Good Friday, 
or every single time we touch the scar on the back of her leg, we tell the story because we remember God's goodness. If you have Hazel, she can tell you that the scar on the back of her leg means Jesus saved her. And we stand behind that. We know that God is faithful and God is through the storm. I know that not everyone gets to have that story. That the story is not as uh, full of hope or uh, God's deliverance, or maybe it looks differently. But I know for us, God brought us through that storm, and we'll never forget His goodness. So we take the time to remember. This doesn't mean we always do it right. It doesn't mean we always remember His things, because God has also brought us through a storm before starting at Claybog. But in that storm, after Hazel had already been delivered, and after we'd already seen him do the impossible, I wavered. I trust that God is good. I just wasn't sure that God was so good to me. He made a promise that 13 years later still wasn't fulfilled. And yet, while he doesn't delay, he got me where I needed to go. I get to be here now. And yet I was not faithful. So, while I share this out of honesty, the point I want to get across is there's three types of people who need to hear something today. There's one group of people that I alluded to earlier who is in the storm and has never seen God deliver. They've never seen God's goodness or faithfulness. If you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never chosen to follow after Him, today is a great day to start. He loves you. He makes promises that He wants to keep. So if you've got questions, find literally just anyone around you. If they can't answer your questions, we'll find someone who can. There's a second group of people. You are in the storm. You follow Jesus. You've given Him your life. You trust Him as your Savior. And yet life seems to be unrelenting. You can't win. You have no hope. But yet, you need to hear that God remembers His people. There's still hope. God's not done yet. The story isn't fully written. And the final group is you've been through the storm. You've seen the horrible. You've seen things go to where it seemed like there was no hope to ultimately God's deliverance. He brought you through the storm. Do you remember that? And I don't just mean, like, can you tell the story, but do you meditate on it like Mary did? Do you treasure it in your heart? Do we take the time to slow down and remember God's goodness in the good seasons? Or, in the storm, are we prone to cry out, God, you've forsaken me? Or, God, where are you? Or, I don't believe you're still good. So what are you going to do today? When you go home to remember those storms? Because God's good. You've seen it. And if you haven't, you're about to. So with that, I'm going to close the prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we get to spend together talking about your work. Thank you for remembering me. Thank you for remembering us. Even when it seems like we're alone, or distant, or hopeless, you still sit on your throne. You do the impossible. I pray that we can uh, be mindful of you, who you are, and what you do. You're a life changer and a life giver. And so I pray that you continue to do your work uh, in us as a people. And let us hear what you have to say. Let us remember the good things you've done, the victories you've declared. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Awesome. Thank you, Quayback Church. Have a great week. 
Once again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified of new content every week. Remember, we want to help you worship, connect, and serve. So if you live in the central Massachusetts area, we would love for you to engage with us on Sundays. For more information, service times, and details about our children's and youth ministries, visit us at quaybogchurch.org. Have a blessed week.